posted up there. And uh, we got, I think I told you about this. We had an opportunity to take a trip, uh, went and flew into Spokane, Washington, where my folks live. And uh, mom and dad are gracious enough to lend us their Lincoln town car. And we all can pile in there. Now, I, I want you to get this picture straight here. Um, my dad has a license plate on this car, and it says, I'm hers. Okay? That immediately is going to attract all sorts of attention. Okay? I mean, you know, when you see something that's kind of weird, like on a license plate, you've got to find out who kind of person is driving that. All right? So I've, I've got dad's car here. It says, I'm hers on it. And, uh, and there's three in front and three in the back, okay? And we're packed in there like sardines. And, and we're making our way to my, fam- my, my most favorite place to drive in the entire world. Uh, when you go from Spokane to Portland, you're going to come to the Columbia River Gorge. And it is absolutely magnificent. You know, on the, as you go through on one side, you have the majestic and all-powerful Columbia River. It separates the states of Washington, Oregon. It is it is massive, and it's powerful, and to see it, I mean, it's just so cool. And then on the other side, why you have Mount Hood in all its majesty, snow-capped. You have Multnomah Falls, fourth largest falls in the United States, and it's just kind of towering down. And there's a bunch of other waterfalls and unique rock features and cliffs and, and all these mountains that have all these fir trees in there, and it's just powerful. It's like a worship experience going through there. And the, the problem is, uh, when we went... It was raining, and a major cloud system, as per usual for the Oregon, uh, had settled into the gorge, and really the only thing I saw was a bunch of semis and cars and rain, and, and really you could do good just to kind of see in front of you. So I'm, I'm traveling with my family in style. I've got my low-carb monster drink, right? We're all packed in there, and, you know, people go by. You just kind of wave them. Life is good, okay? Well, you know, I knew, I knew that there was just majestic scenery, and I wanted to point it out to the kids. And, and my, my dad's little GPS unit, you know, told me all the different waterfalls that we were passing and stuff, but I couldn't see any of them. I knew they were out there. I just couldn't see it. It's kind of like life. We know that, that God is out there. He's, he's working. He's done magnificent things in the past. He's currently, presently at work in some very significant ways. And there's so much in store for the future. But oftentimes life is like driving in the fog and the rain you know that there there's these great movements of god and god's mighty powerful hand is present and yet you just can't see it you're just traveling in fact all you can see is the rain and the dirt and the mud and semis and people passing and being rude and and you know what happens is is we kind of forget that god is really powerful and presently active in our situation as difficult as it may seem And that is why we as Christians so greatly value every opportunity to reconnect and re-experience the great presence of God, to have our perspective renewed, to have our lives recalibrated. That's why we, we as believers, we actually value spending time in God's word. Because every time we do, every time we do this, it, it once again renews us to the perspective that, yes, indeed, God is very powerful. He is the Almighty. Or that's why we we come together on Sunday morning worship. I don't know about you, but this is my best hour of the week because we are gathering with the saints just now. I I just closed my mouth and I just listened to the praises of all the people that are gathered here. How great is our God? Because I need to hear that. I need to be reminded that our God is great. He's powerful. And that the whole world will one day see. That's why we value having 
friendships that are truly in Christ. Not just that you can kick about how the Rangers are doing but, or talk about the weather. As fun as that is, we need genuine relationships that can go deeper. They can really ask us questions about what you're learning from God. How are you growing? Sharing prayer requests, needs, victories. You see, we value these things as Christians because you know what they do? They once again renew us to the perspective that we so vitally need in this life. And that is that with God, all things are powerful. And all things are possible because he is so powerful. And that's why this text that we come to in Genesis 47 is so amazing. Because this text, what it does is it's like a compass in the midst of the fog of, of life and the fog of fear. It takes those who are disillusioned and discouraged and it, and it brings us back to the immovable rock of the reality of the living God. It's like sunshine that breaks through the fog of forgetfulness. And so beginning in, Isaiah, in, in Genesis chapter 47, verse 13, we're going to see the powerful hand of God displayed. Once again, we see that with God, all things are possible. All for quite a while now, all summer long and, and beginning even in the spring, we have been going and tracing through the life of Joseph through the, in the book of Genesis. And we have seen that God has taken a very troubled, broken down family, a family that's filled with deceit and jealousy and favoritism and hatred. And he is, as he promised Abraham, going to form a nation, a nation that will be a blessing to all people. And so we see that through a series of events, God actually takes a family that is broken apart, in fact, actually divided. They actually sold their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery. Joseph is a slave, then he's in prison because he's falsely accused of rape. He spends his 20s in prison, but yet through a, an amazing event where Joseph actually interprets the dream of Pharaoh, Joseph is given the position of prime minister of Egypt. And then a famine, as Joseph said, God has revealed there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. A famine is going to hit the land. And indeed it happened. And when the famine hit, Joseph's fam family that was up in Canaan, because they were so destitute and they had nothing and they were starving to death, they started making trips down to Egypt because they needed food. And it was through this major worldwide difficulty that God brought about this great work of bringing this family and uniting them. And that's what we saw be, uh, starting last week with, where they actually came and they were all together. Jacob, Joseph's father, they were re reunited after a 22-year separation where Joseph was believed in Jacob's mind to have been dead. Indeed, he's alive. In fact, he has never been more alive. And when we come to Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 13, we see that our God is able. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And just to show that we will not forget and that will we be once again reminded of the power of God, he shows us just how powerful he is. Beginning in verse 13, he shows us that God is able to deliver a nation from peril. Verse 13, now there was no food in all the land. Because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. OK, that's the land present day Israel all the way up there to the north and the east languished because of the famine. This was a huge famine without food. What let me tell you what happens without food. You can't feed your animals. Your animals start dying off. If you don't have food, you can't feed your family. 
You'd start feeding the kids first. But eventually, if there's no food, even the people die. I mean, we're so used to like, oh, I'll just go to H-E-B. I'm hungry. I go to a gas station. There's food everywhere. But life wasn't like that. Food was scarcer and scarcer. And had not God revealed to Pharaoh, through, through being interpreted through Joseph, to save grain for seven years, Egypt, Canaan, the people would have completely perished. But God is gracious. And he shows his hand of power by delivering this nation. Now, there was no bread in Egypt and Canaan, and they were languishing because of this famine. And notice this. Joseph, Joseph is at work. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought, bought. And Joseph bought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. What you're going to see here is the Egyptians, they believed in about 2,000 plus gods. And I'm sure the people of Egypt were crying out to their gods, just like the Canaanites, who were very pagan, were calling out to their gods, help us. But their gods are powerless. But God, the one true God, the God of revelation, the God of creation, he actually reveals himself to be all powerful. And you know how he does it oftentimes? He does it through his people. God shows the world his greatness through the transforming work that he actually does in his people. Specifically in this instance, he's doing it through Joseph. Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. Let's talk a little bit about leadership and about work. You know, some folks have the idea that um, God is completely separate from anything to do with work. I mean, he's too holy. And our jobs, you know, it's it's not really sacred. There's nothing spiritual about this. You know, I just make widgets all day or I just manage people or I'm making this box or whatever. And, and God has nothing to do with that. And so many people have this like dichotomy. They have, well, God is involved in spiritual things and they think that anything related to work, God's not interested and he's not involved. Or some people have the view that, uh, well, you know, God has given me an opportunity to evangelize and share the faith. And so that's why I have a job. And the only purpose for my job is to share the faith. Some people... Uh, Some people think like, you know, um, God simply is so uninterested in my job that the only way that I really find any life is to find life outside of my job. And so they tolerate their job. They realize their job gives them income and money, provides them food for the table. But you are completely missing God's purposes and what he's trying to accomplish in your job. You need to know that your work matters to God. In fact, God intends to glorify himself through how you conduct yourselves in your job. You are a representative, if you know Christ, you are a representative of Christ and his kingdom and the place in which you've planted. You know, we are very big on missionaries and supporting them and sending them out the world, but do you know that if you know Christ, that you are a missionary and God has sent you to a specific field? It's, i.e., the activities of your day in and day out life. Whether you be a homemaker, you're teaching school, you have some sort of job, you're a professor, you're a mechanic, that is your field. And God intends not only to glorify himself through how you work, through your character, your integrity, how you show initiative, your loyalty, your honesty, but God actually wants to reflect himself through how you live your life on your job. Like it said in Titus 2.10, that, that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You see, God is reflecting his nature through how you go about your job. You know, Joseph learned some incredible lessons while he was in jail and while he was a slave. 
He learned how to manage. He learned how to be truthful. He learned how to live his life with integrity, how to take initiative, how to trust God for big things. Joseph never saw his life as a slave or when he's in prison as like, oh, God's not interested in this. In fact, he was fully aware that God was with him. In fact, that's what it said over and over in Genesis 39, four times, the Lord was with him. And he took advantage of the opportunities, though they looked like they were some pretty weak opportunities, being a slave, being a prisoner, and he made the most of them. He, he operated on this principle, bloom where you're planted. And so he did. He flourished even in prison or even as a slave. And the lessons that he learned when he's young, now that he is the prime minister of Egypt, they come into full play. He, is, he, is under, he learned the lessons. He is able to exercise great amounts of leadership. And that's what we see him doing. He is trading. He trades. He, he takes, in verse 14, he gathers all the money and that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. They brought, they brought him. They brought, bring their money because he's got the grain. He delivers to him. Well, guess what? The money runs out. Verse 15. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. All the money at this point now, Joseph has collected all the silver that is available. And they said, you know what? We're going to die here. And so a barter system was created. Verse 16, then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. Give this the livestock that you have. You give them to me. It will be under Pharaoh's domain, but then I will give you food so you'll be able to feed your livestock. And so verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses and their flocks and their herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Well, once they had all the livestock got traded, guess what? Another year of famine. You don't have any money. Now you don't have any animals. What are you going to do now? Well, verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and they said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are all my, are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Then why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. It was axiomatic in the ancient world that if you, if you needed something bad enough and you didn't have anything to trade anymore, you had no money, nothing to trade, that you would even forfeit up your own liberty in order to live. And what would happen is that they would actually become slaves now of the Egyptian empire, specifically to Pharaoh. But by doing so, then, they are now under the care of Pharaoh. Pharaoh now needs to take care of them. And so that's what they did. This was, although it's like, I mean, this is very foreign to our sensibilities. What they did is they, they were so destitute and they absolutely needed food to live and for their families they would actually say, would you buy me so that I may have food and be able to provide? And that's exactly what takes place here. They ran out of money, out of livestock, out of land. They eventually sell themselves into slavery. Now, verse 20. So Joseph had bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph is actually going to do, he's, he's managing a crisis here. Okay, 
This is far greater than the crisis of, like, there's oil in the Gulf, which is a big crisis. But we're looking at Egypt and all its people and Canaan. Without, without the proper management of the food resources, they all die. And so, verse 20, 21, as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. So now he takes them where their primary granaries are, and so that they can get the food, he actually moves people temporarily to all these city centers so they can be fed, so that they can actually make their way through this huge famine. And he says, verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. So now, at the end of seven years, Joseph knows that the famine is going to end. And now he gives them seed, seed in which to plant Because now the rain is going to come. The seeds are going to sprout and grain can once again be produced. He's going to give them, he's giving them seed. And in verse 24, he says, at the harvest, this is how this is going to work. You shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your household and as food for your little ones. Now, what's taking place here is he's saying, listen, return to your farms. And I'm, the only thing I'm requiring you is that one-fifth of the grain that you produce comes into Pharaoh's household. You're thinking, wow, 20%, that sounds pretty steep. But actually, uh, from records of, of the Mediterranean and how these ancient civilizations worked, usually it was 40%, all, all the way up to three-quarters of what they produced would go into the coffers of the king. And so what he's, Joseph is extremely gracious here. He's very fair, and he's providing for them. And how did the people respond to that? Did they think like, ah, Joseph, you're taking advantage of us. No. Actually, they realized what was happening. Look at verse 25. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. You see, the people realized that Joseph was being used to save their lives. This is very key because remember when when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, he said, your wickedness and the evil things you did, actually God was at work in them for this very reason, to preserve life, that many people will be saved. And the lives that are being saved, not only are Joseph's family, but all of Egypt and even the people in Canaan. Now, this is kind of interesting. What is taking place here is God has set up a man, a man by the name of Joseph, and all the world is coming to him because of the wisdom that God has given him, and they're coming to him for life and for food. You see, Joseph is like shining like a beacon of light in the midst of a very dark nation. And there's something that we need to point out here. I don't think we think oftentimes about this, but Pharaoh is a pagan ruler. In fact, Pharaoh thinks he is a god. How would you like to run around thinking you're a god? Okay. That's, this is Pharaoh. And, and sometimes Christians think like, oh, if, if he's not a Christian, then God can't do anything through him or work through this individual. That's actually, that's mistaken. That is a way too limited view of God. In fact, God has kind of a running history 
of showing how sovereign his power is that he actually can do his work even through a pagan ruler. He does it right here for, through Pharaoh. He is, Pharaoh is the one who said, all right, you may have the land of the Goshen, and he provides for Joseph's family. And who's, how, what's taking place here? God's actually working through a pagan king like Pharaoh. But God did it also like with a guy by the name of Cyrus, who was a Persian king, or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, or Caesar Augustus in Rome. God cannot be limited. Our God is able, and with God, all things are possible. And there's something else that I think we need to see from this passage before you kind of move on. God is very concerned with the people whom he has created, even if they do not know him. You know, you're thinking, wow, all these people, they they have nothing to do with the one true God. They do lots of wicked things. They have wicked worship practices. In fact, much of the worship of Egypt was actually focused on death. There's nothing about worshiping the one true God. Why does God even care? Why does he spare this nation and the nation of Canaan, which was extremely wicked? Do you know why? He is concerned that they come to know him. And so you know what God does? God actually sends his people in the midst of dark places to represent him so that people will see and understand and know what it means to know the one true God. You know, the people in Egypt didn't call Joseph Joseph. They called him Zaphonath Panea. God lives and speaks. That was the name that Pharaoh gave him after God gave Pharaoh gave testimony that, hey, listen, God is the one that's revealing this to you. Zaphonath Panea, God lives and speaks. You see, Joseph is bearing testimony to the world of the one true God. And God has what we would call common grace that he extends to all people. He gives them, he, like Jesus said, he gives rain and causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. Because he is a gracious God and he loves people and he wants them to come to know him and the joy of being in relationship with the living God. That is what he desires. That is why he sends his people in the midst of darkness. By the way, that's why some of you are in the jobs that you're at. You might think, I am the only Christian that's here. Whoa. You mean God is entrusting you with that situation? Yeah, that's how God works. That's how God worked in Egypt. There weren't really very many believers at all. And at one time, it was only Joseph. But God sent Joseph for this purpose, to draw people unto himself you know this is something that was emphasized even as the in the in the new testament when the church is just getting started like in acts chapter 14 remember that the uh, paul and barnabas uh, they make their way and they go into a town called lystra and there was a guy who had never walked his entire life he'd been lamed and so he they what they did is god actually performed a miracle through them and these people they worship you know, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks, and they're like, whoa, whoa, Zeus and Hermes have come before us. You know, and so they're bringing out the oxen. They want to slaughter them. They got all this garland out here. And do you remember how Paul and Barnabas responded? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, stop. What are you guys doing? No, we are men just like you. We're cut out of the same bolt of cloth. However, we preach the gospel. We preach the good news about what God has done through Christ. And, you know, God has given the world a witness. In fact, this is what they say in Acts chapter 14, verse 16. He says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. 
in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God gave you rain, food, even giving gladness to your heart. That is the nature of God. You know, so people that don't know Christ and yet they receive blessings in their life, maybe they're, they have wealth, maybe they have a nice family, they, maybe God's provided a home, maybe they have an apartment, maybe they have clothes, maybe they even have friends. Do you know why God does these things? He is showing himself to be good, and he's doing so for the purpose to draw them to himself. And then God brings someone to tell them, listen, you know all the good things that you even have in your life? They're from God himself. And God loves you so much that he even sent a Savior to pay the penalty for your sin so that you might know the fullness of joy of relationship with the one true God. Well, that was similar to what Paul did. Remember when he was in uh, Athens speaking at the Areopagus and he's standing up there on that hill and he said this, the God who made the world and all things in it, there's one God and he made all things and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything. You got it all wrong if you think you got to be bringing things to God, okay? Like he's weak and you got to make him strong. No, this is what he said. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. All things are given by God. And he even gives even to people who are wicked. Why? He wants to draw them to himself. And that's what Joseph is. Joseph is standing as a beacon of light. He is providing for a world in need. In fact, he kind of prefigures Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. Well, all the people are coming to Joseph for physical food. Friends, if you want spiritual food for your life, are you starving? Are you done with the stuff of this world that you're trying to gnaw and get some sort of satisfaction and sufficiency out of? And come to Jesus. Jesus promises to give you the bread of true, authentic, spiritual life. You see why this passage is in here? It is to show us that our God is able. He is able to deliver a nation from peril. Let me show you something else that our God is able to do. Look at verses 27 and 28. You might skip through it, but to do so is to miss something extremely important of what's taking place here. Our God is able to develop a people for his own possession. Look at verses 27 and 28. Everybody else is having a really bad time of it, right? Okay? They've had to sell everything they have, their money, their little donkeys, all their cattle, their land, themselves. What's taking place with Jacob's family, the promised family? This, this family was on the verge of getting completely wiped out. Look at verse 27. Now Israel, speaking of Jacob and Jacob's family, lived in the land of Egypt in the Goshen. Remember that 900 square mile area, the delta of the Nile River, it's where all the water flows. It is the very best of the land. Pharaoh said it's the fat of the land. They lived in the Goshen and they acquired property in it and they were fruitful and became very numerous. You see what God's doing? God took a a people that he promised, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and from you will come forth leaders. And he took them and he placed them in Egypt. Now, remember the occupation of the people of of Israel, Jacob's family? What were they? Remember? Sheepherders, right? And what did the Egyptians think of sheepherders? They like them? No. No, no, no. You guys stay as far away from us as possible. And so what God did is he put them into Egypt. 
And he put them around people that really didn't like them and didn't even want to be around them. Okay? And what he did is he created a nation. You see, about 400 plus years from this event, where the people are multiplying in Egypt, Moses is going to lead about 2 million people out of Egypt. You see, what happened is God made a promise to Abraham, from you, I am going to bless you, and from you, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you will be a blessing to all people. And that's exactly what God is doing. In the womb of Egypt, God is developing the child of his nation, the nation Israel. And you know, uh, it's very interesting, verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. It's really interesting Joseph, the first 17 years, dad took care of Joseph. Remember? Joseph and Jacob's last 17 years, Joseph takes care of dad. And what's taking place here is God is forming a nation. A nation of people who will walk with him and know him. Who will receive his word and follow it. That is what God is intending and what he's doing. You know what? God's doing the exact same thing today. Did you know that? It says... That in First Peter chapter two verses nine and ten, there's a really interesting passage, and it tells us that God is calling out a people for His own possession. He is even at this present time, He is calling people to believe in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, the Son of God, and He's doing so so that you will become His people. And it says in First Peter chapter two verse nine, He says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." It doesn't have a geographical boundary. All those whose heart is united with Christ, they're part of the people of God. And you are a people for his own possession, and you have a job to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You once weren't a people, but guess what? Now you are the people of God. You know, that's what God is. Our God is so powerful that he is able to develop a people for his own possession. That's what he's doing here. He's even doing so presently. And then one final thing before we close. There's something else I want you to see. Our God is able to deepen the faith of his followers. Here at the very end of Israel's life, Jacob's life, he's going to show you that he is ending his life well. Look at verse 29. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph And said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. And you're kind of thinking like, what's going on here? And deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I die, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And so he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. You see, I think Jacob, for much of his life, probably felt like he was living in a fog. I mean, he had, he, his boys were bad. They were evil. And some of the wicked things they recorded, are, like in Genesis chapter 38, are, are difficult to read. It's not like you're going to spend a lot of time with let's family devotions in Genesis 38 when you recount just how wicked like a guy like Judah is. And then we saw the division in his family and that his brothers could hear less about their, his son Joseph. He must have thought, how is this ever possible? It's like the promises God gave to Abraham. They end in my generation because somehow I have completely failed. You know, and Jacob himself 
had a lot of failures in his life. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a liar. Right? He obviously was a bad parent, played favorites. He didn't step up and take control oftentimes. He didn't lead well. But I'll tell you this about Jacob. God worked it in such a way that this man finishes with a blaze of glory. He finishes well. You see, by the grace of God, he was able to finish strong. I'm sure he was very tentative moving down to Egypt because he's like, man, this is the promised land. If I leave here, maybe it is game over. But remember, God met him on the way and said, listen, I will be with you. In fact, I will make a great nation out of you while you're in Egypt. And Joseph, he's going to close your eyes. But listen, you're going to come back. I will be with you. And so what's taking place here is he is asking Joseph, because Reuben has forfeited the right of the firstborn. He's actually going to Joseph. Joseph actually kind of steps into the lead role. He's saying this, I want you to promise me, swear to me, that you'll take me back to Egypt. Now, this, you're thinking about, hey, I still can't get back. What's going on with the hand underneath the thigh here? That seems weird. I've never heard about that before. What's going on? That is how they made a solemn oath. It'd be similar to like putting your hand on a Bible and swearing to tell the absolute truth. It's that powerful. That's what they did. This was the sign of, of complete truthfulness, that you would swear that you're going to do this. And so that's how they demonstrated that. And what he says is this. I am not going to be attracted to the lures of Egypt. I believe so much in the promises of God that when I die, I want you to take my body, my bones, and I want you to take them back to that family cave up in Canaan because that's where this family is going. We're here only for a time. I want my bones to be planted back where we're eventually going to go. I believe in the promises. In fact, what you see here is a development of faith. This man is worshiping God. And and kind of what he's doing is he's basically planning his own funeral. His final statement is, I believe in the promises of God. I believe that God is going to give us that land of Canaan. That is the promised land. And I want you to take my body and I want to be buried there. I'm going to ask you a question, especially of you who perhaps are older. And maybe even you are on your last lap. What are you going to say when you cannot speak? What are you going to say? What is going to be your final testimony? Oftentimes people are very concerned about their, you know, making their last will and testament. And that's important. I encourage you to do that. But what is going to be your last witness, witness and testimony? What are you going to say when you're no longer alive on this earth. Jacob says, I want one thing to be known. I want my family to know I believe completely 100% in God and his promises. And I believe, even though that land is occupied by the Canaanites, that one day it will be Israel. I want you to bury me there. And then it says that he worshiped at the head of his bed. Now, that's pretty interesting here. The, the Hebrew word for bed and for rod, they're the same consonants. It's just the vowels that may be pro, that placed in there that change it from either for bed or for a staff. Okay? The same consonants, it's just the vowels change. And what, you know, it's very possible it would be bed, but um, I actually think it was probably his staff. In fact, even Hebrews chapter 11, he is Joseph, I mean, Jacob, is commented that he worshipped on top of his, you know, basically placing himself on that staff, and he and he worshipped God, leaning on the top of his staff. That staff represented him journeying through life, 
And his final statement, his final expression, the thing that he wanted to be remembered by is that in my journey, I worship God. You see, the most important part of the race, guys, is how you finish. Do you know that you can fall down and still win the race? In fact, in life, we do find there are times we've fallen down and we get scraped up and we're beat up. But you know what? God picks us back up. He is gracious. He puts us back on the track of life and we're able to run. And the most important part of the race is how you finish. Okay? And if you're going to finish well, you have to run well. And that's what Jacob is doing. Yeah, there were some times where he tripped up and he didn't really do all that well. But he is finishing extremely well. And you know how we do it? You know how you and I live well and finish well? We remember that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And what we have to do is we have to renew our mind and our heart with this reality. Because you know what? We are so easily distracted. There are so many pressures and problems and things that are taking us away from the reality that our God is with us and that with him all things are possible. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, you know, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And this is what he says. And do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed by what? Be renewed by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be renewed of the reality of who God is. And what it is when we do this, we all of a sudden, we can start seeing Mount Hood and the waterfalls and the Columbia River. We can see the power of God when we are renewed by his presence. Let me tell you, friends, God can save us. He can strengthen us. He can sustain us. And he can see us through. You see, with God, all things are possible. And I don't know about you, but you know what? I, on a regular basis, I need to be reminded. All of you who are leaders, you're involved in spiritual ministry, you and I, we need to be reminded. With God, all things are possible. Those of you who are going through very difficult situations, perhaps you're even finding like maybe your marriage is kind of on the verge of breakdown, you're facing some sort of, something's got a hold on your life, and you're not sure how you're going to be able to get over it or through it, Remember this, with God, all things are possible. Remember there was a guy, he was a rich young ruler, and he came and visited Jesus, and he said, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, he said, come follow me. And some of the things that Jesus said that were major distractions in his life, he just walked away, couldn't do it. And the people were like, whoo, whoa, man. And they were like, whoa, how hard it is to enter in the kingdom of heaven, right? And then uh, Jesus said, yeah, you know what it is? It's it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And after Jesus said that, they were even more astonished. Like, whoa. Well, then, who possibly could be saved? And, and that's when Jesus said this. You know, with people, it's impossible. But with God, with God, all things are possible. And that's why this is in here. We need to be regularly reminded that with God... All things are possible. And you know what that does? That allows you and I to live with hope. That's what we need. You cannot live without hope. The scriptures tell us you can have hope in God because with him, all things are possible. And he wants his people living with a vision 
of the a vision of the greatness of God, not to just sing it here at church, but that when you walk out those doors, you are entering into your mission field. And the testimony that we give to this world is how great is our God. He's at work in our lives. He has given good things to you. He intends to draw you to himself that you might know the greatness of our God. And you'll be able to say with all the saints of all the ages, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. You are truly an amazing God, not words just in a song. They are words from the scripture, words in our hearts. You have transformed us, Lord, by the power of your son. You are calling out a people for your own possession. We are your people. You love us. We love you. And you intend for us to bear great testimony to this world in our generation that the world might see how great you are. And so, Lord, give us a whole new perspective to our jobs, to our situation. For those of us who are experiencing heartache and brokenness, would you bring healing and give us faith in you, recognizing you're the most important uh, object of our life. The object of our faith is you. Our circumstances, though they may be bad, you're far greater. The troubles that we face, Though they be difficult, you are God and you are able. And so, Lord, we praise you. We ask that even today that your son might melt away the fog of forgetfulness and once again fill us with the joy of knowing and worshiping a living Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.